Episode 198 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by cloud accounting software FreshBooks and by Gusto. FreshBooks offering a free 30-day trial with access to all their features. To find out more, visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Gusto is refreshingly easy payroll, benefits, and HR for the modern small business. Currently offering an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash read to lead. The challenge that I want to issue is this. You get to be the leader that you wish you'd had. You get to be the leader that you always said, oh, I wish I'd had a leader like that. All right, well, you get to be that leader. Hi there, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast, a podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I'm Jeff Brown, and I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key ideas and valuable insights from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. In just a few minutes, you and I get to sit down with Mr. Todd Henry. He's been on the show a few times before. He's the author of Herding Tigers. Not herding, but herding tigers. I want to be clear. Be the leader that creative people need. I'll ask Todd to share about how to establish the structure your creative team needs the importance of establishing clear boundaries and the effect those boundaries can have on trust, tips for coaching your team up to their potential, and a lot more. You know, if your small business is anything like mine, you don't have an HR expert. And that's one of the things I love about our sponsor, Gusto, because with Gusto, you don't need an HR expert. Great software, great service. You can focus on your business, not payroll and paperwork. And I love that you no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. Unsure about Gusto? Google them. People love Gusto. How often do you actually love your payroll provider? And 72% of Gusto customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. I definitely think you should give it a try, and right now is a great time to do that. Gusto is offering an exclusive limited time deal. You sign up today, and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Again, that's three months free free. To find out more, just go to gusto.com slash read to lead. Our guest today, Todd Henry, is passionate about creatives and leaders of creatives. And if that's you, you know you're in the business of turning ideas into value for your customers. The thing is, you need time to cultivate fresh ideas, right? Well, that's exactly where our sponsor, cloud accounting software FreshBooks, can help. They make cloud accounting software for creative professionals that's so straightforward to use, you save hours every week and have more time to let your creativity flourish. Branded invoices in under 30 seconds, online payments in two clicks. There's also a new projects feature where you can invite employees or contractors to collaborate and easily share information, files, and updates. Now is a great time to try FreshBooks with that free, unrestricted 30-day trial. No credit card needed. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and then just enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead todd henry the author of the accidental creative and die empty is the founder of accidental creative a company that helps people and teams in many different industries he's appeared you may recall on read to lead twice before to talk about 
both Die Empty, one of my favorite books uh, of the last five years, and certainly my favorite book from that year. And uh, he was also here to, to talk about his last book, Louder Than Words. Uh, through his speaking and workshops, he teaches simple practices that lead to everyday brilliance. His brand new book out today is called Hurting Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need. And yes, you thought hurting cats was hard. <laughs> uh, it, gets, it gets tougher, or it can. Uh, Todd, welcome back to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, it is an absolute delight to be here. And thanks so much for, uh, just, I don't know if anybody ever says this to you, but thanks for the way you serve your community. I mean, you just, mm. you show up, you provide such unbelievable value to uh, those leaders out there who want to be better at what they do. And so thank you for what you do. Wow. Okay, we're done. <laughs> Going to end on a high note. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I appreciate you you saying that very, very much. You're, you're one of my, my favorite people to talk to, uh, as evidenced by the number of times you've, you've been here. And, and this third visit puts you in a very rare group in company with people like Liz Weissman and uh, Jeff Goins. Uh, and I think also John Acuff, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So congratulations. Wow. <laughs> I will take that company any day. That's awesome. Well, as I, as I read the book, I, I kept thinking of people I need to send it to. And so I, I've started a list of people who I think can benefit greatly from this book. And I've enjoyed it myself. Todd says there are two things right out of the gate that creative people need in order to, to flourish. So, Todd, what does your experience suggest that those two things are? Yeah. And, and, you know, there are all kinds of myths, Jeff, that exist <laughs> in the marketplace about creative people, right? Mm -hmm. all, they're all about the idea or they're so difficult or they're so insecure. I mean, these, of course, these are, are myths, they're stereotypes, but they're stereotypes for a reason. It's because a lot of times, you know, when you're engaging in highly insecure, opaque, difficult, subjective work, and you're not getting what you need in order to do that work, often it's tempting to react in an unhealthy way. And so a lot of the things that we see, the problems that we see in the market, marketplace surrounding the creative process are the result of highly creative people, talented people not getting what they need from their leaders, from their management. And there are really primarily two things that creative people need in order to thrive. And, and most of the other things we could say, well, what about this? What about that? They could be slotted under these two general categories. And the first one is stability. It's really difficult to do highly creative, risky work when you don't have a stable environment from which to work, mm -hmm. right? And stability is primarily comprised of two things. Number one, clarity. Creative people need to understand clear expectations. They need to have uh, a firm playing field on which to do their work, right? If there's not firm ground from which to leap, it's going to be really difficult to do the highly uncertain, difficult, challenging, risky work that's often involved in producing something creative. And so we need to understand very clearly, what are the expectations? What are we trying to do? What's the target that we're trying to hit here? Don't tell me how to hit the target. Just tell me what the target is that we're trying to hit. And the problem is a lot of times in, in organizations, those expectations are less than clear because the leader is watching. Waffling. The leader is waiting to see how the political wind blows or waiting <laughs> to see what the client says instead of getting buy in from the stakeholders early in the process and saying, OK, now we're going to make a decision here because the people need the people on my team need to get to work. And so we're going to be very clear. Here's here's what we're doing. Here's here's the decision we're making. And I need to get buy in from you because once we get buy in, we're going to start working. So we have to have clarity of expectations. And the second thing is protection. It's really important that leaders protect the time and attention of their team 
from the chaos of the organization because organizations are like giant chaos monsters that want to come in and absorb every spare moment of time and attention, whether it's endless meetings or uh, your last minute projects or whatever. Organizations want to come in and suck all of the time and attention from the creative people on your team. And you as a leader, you have to stand in the gap and protect your team from those unnecessary commitments so that they can have the time they need to do what Cal Newport calls deep work, right? To be able to focus right. deeply, to delve deeply into the creative work. So that's stability. And that's kind of the first, first thing that creative people need. They need a stable environment in which to do their work. But the second thing they need is challenge. And challenge means they want to be pushed. They want to work on things that matter. They want to be stretched beyond what they think is capable for them. They want someone to see them, to know them, and to believe in them. They want someone to ask them to do work that they feel a little bit nervous about engaging in because it feels a little bit beyond what they're capable of. The problem, Jeff, is that stability and challenge exist in tension with one another. Mm. So a lot of times in order to correct for an overly challenging environment, leaders begin to stabilize and they overstabilize. So the problem is then the creative people on their team don't feel challenged any longer. They feel like they're basically just cranking out things day after day after day, but they're not challenged. And so mm. highly talented creative people are going to seek better horizons. If that happens, they're going to get bored pretty quickly. And then, of course, you know, it's possible that you challenge people to the point where you destabilize the organization. When that happens, your team's going to get angry. And these organizations don't exist for very long. The ones that are highly you know, chaotic and we're doing lots of great work and it's really amazing. And you see these organizations, they're flashing the pan, they're shooting star organizations because people on the team will eventually begin to feel used and abused. And you know, if there's nothing predictable about the environment in which they work, they're going to get frustrated and they're going to leave. And so a lot of the, the lack of health that we see on many creative teams is the result of creative people not getting one of these two things, either stability or challenge. And as a leader, you are uniquely positioned to put your hand on the dials and to sort of dial in stability and challenge for each person on your team and make sure that they're adequately challenged, but that they're also receiving the kind of stability they need. It's a kind of bounded autonomy. This is a phrase that came up over and over in the research, right? Uh, it's, it's autonomy. You have freedom to do what you want to be to be challenged, but you all it's also freedom within boundaries. So you know that there's a stable, firm playing field on which the game is being played. And so if we get that right as leaders, the upside is tremendous for the people on our team. Yeah, let's let's dig into that a little bit, because one of my favorite quotes from the book is freedom within boundaries is an essential mm -hmm. ingredient to creative growth. So as a leader, how can we go about establishing leadership principles, I think is, is the term you use with our creative team that, that gives them that structure that they so desperately need? Yeah. And this is this is something I heard over and over and over again from brilliant leaders I interviewed in the course of writing this book. Mm. You know, we we tend to think that creativity is about complete freedom. Just don't <laughs> fence me in. Right. right. Uh, you know, Orson Welles said the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. Mm. The absence of limitations is the enemy of art, meaning we have to have some boundaries by which we can focus our attention. And so as a leader, it's important that we have some kind of a guiding philosophy, a leadership philosophy, a place where we draw boundary lines for our team and say, hey, as long as you stay within these boundary lines, you're good. The moment you cross one of these boundary lines, there's going to be trouble, right? So <laughs> if your team doesn't understand what to expect from you, if they don't understand what will be rewarded, what will be punished on the team, how do you define good work? I mean, this is a this is a thing that, you know, it's like shooting at a moving target for a lot of creative teams because they don't understand how the leader defines good work. So what is good work? What does that mean to you? You know, how do we know when a project is complete? 
This is another one that's really important. How do we handle conflict on our team? If you have a problem with a client, you have a problem with a peer, how do you handle that conflict? Do I expect you as a leader to handle that one-on-one? Do I expect you to come to me and handle that? You know, these are these are kind of guiding philosophies or, or principles by which your team operates. And if you're, again, this is all part of creating stability for your team. If your team doesn't understand clearly the rules of the game, you know, the rules by which you are leading the team, then they're going to really struggle to do their work because they're constantly guessing not only what does the client want or what does the organization want, but what do you want as a leader? Because it seems like last time you rewarded this, but this time you kind of seem to be punishing me for doing the same behavior. It makes no sense. And when that happens, when, when there's a lack of clarity, we often see the emergence of what I call ghost rules, Jeff. And these ghost rules are invisible narratives, invisible rules that creep into the organization and they begin to limit behavior. It's kind of like, you know, a dog. have you ever seen a dog when, when uh, the owner first installs one of those invisible fences, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. the dog's like running around, <laughs> you're running around and all of a sudden, eh, and they just get shocked, right? And they're like, whoa, what just happened? Mm-hmm. And they run back to the middle of the yard and they just sit there. And they, they're like, I'm not going over there again. Are you kidding me? I, I have no idea what just happened. And that's kind of what these ghost rules are like. You know, mm-hmm. it's like all of a sudden you run into this, you know, <laughs> and it begins to limit. It's this invisible rule that limits your engagement. And so as leaders, we have to be really clear about our principles, what we expect from our team so that our team doesn't adopt these ghost rules. Well, you know, that this person can't introduce an idea or, well, we're, we can't do that here. That doesn't work here. Well, who said? Nobody said that. It's an invisible rule that exists in the vacuum where there are no leadership principles and still. So as leaders, we have to be very clear about not just what we want our team to do, but how we want them to go about the work. And that begins with establishing a set of principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the book spends a fair amount of time addressing the, the challenges of new leaders. Uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about boundaries in that sense. Uh, if you aren't successful in creating them, new and, and clear boundaries with people who may be former peers, it's inevitably going to affect their willingness to, to trust you, right? Right, absolutely. And this is a real problem, especially with new leaders. And you know, a, a lot of what I wrote in this book, I wrote as sort of advice to people who were stepping into a leadership role and leading creative people, maybe even for the first time. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny because many people who have been in their role for 10, 15, 20 years <laughs> have been reading the book and and early feedback has been, I wish I had had this because this is going to make me a better leader now. I wish I'd had this back then, but I'm applying this right now. Mm. The problem is a lot of leaders want to be liked. They want, you know, when when you're on a team with a group of people, you're a peer. And what do peers do? Well, peers encourage one another. Peers tell them, hey, you can do this. You know, go for it. Hey, that's amazing. Hey, you want to go get a beer after work? I mean, that's what peers do. The problem is the moment you get promoted into a role of leadership, you have to establish a little bit of discipline between you and the team. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a miserable SOB and you have to (laughs) enforce your will. You know, that's not what it means. What it means is you have to establish a little bit of distance between you and the team so that there is an aura of objectivity. Mm. You know, as a leader, you are making uh, decisions about who gets which project, you know, who's going to work on that prestigious project, you know, Mm. which idea are you going to go with? Who's going to get the next promotion? You know, all of these kinds of decisions are being made by the leader. And so you have to maintain a, a, a sense of distance from your team. Now, this, again, it doesn't mean isolating yourself, sitting in an ivory tower, you know, issuing edicts from on high. <laughs> but it does mean that your relationships with your team have to be more transparent and you have to 
uh, in many ways, you're going to have to have some unco- uncomfortable conversations, maybe with people you've been really close friends with that you've had some regular, you know, like, hey, let's go to lunch three or four times a week and let's talk about our peers, you know, or let's uh, <laughs> some of these unhealthy behaviors, maybe, or let's let's complain about the management or something. You can't do that anymore. You know, now you have to change the way that you regard your team and you have to establish a little bit of distance so that you have the objectivity you need to be able to make effective leadership decisions and to earn the trust of your team. Well, uh, as a leader, and I guess this really goes for not just leaders of creatives, but but all leaders, you're, you're inevitably working with numerous personality types along the way. Uh, mm-hmm. What are some of your suggestions, Todd, for helping leaders understand what drives members of their team so they can better uh, coach them up to to their potential? This is one of my, my favorite insights from mm-hmm. the research for the book. I talked to a hiring consultant named David Weiser. And David is, is, a, is a, he's a brilliant guy, but he primarily helps companies hire chief marketing officers. So he's, he's largely trying to figure out how do we find chief executives or, or these executive suite people who will fit not only in the culture, but also fit with the work and where the company is at a given point in time. And he said over the course of his research, what he's discovered is there are three primary categories of motivators of of people. The first is what he calls builders. Builders are people who like wide open spaces. You know, they they like, um, you know, they, they want to come into an environment where there's nothing there. It's a wide open space. It's a you know, blank canvas and they want to build something new. These are the entrepreneurs. These are the people who are super, super excited when they come in and they're told, we have no idea what to do. What do you think? Right. And so they love that kind of environment and they thrive in that environment. The second kind of uh, motivator, the second kind of profile is what he calls optimizers and optimizers are great at taking an existing system and tweaking it and squeezing the maximum amount of efficiency out of it. And they love that. They love to do that. So they love to come into something that's already established and make it as efficient as it can possibly be. And the third kind of profile is a fixer. And a fixer is primarily about fixing problems. Mm. They want to identify a problem and they want to dedicate all of their waking hours to figuring out how to fix that problem. And they will not sleep until the problem is fixed. That's what they do. Okay. Now, the problem is if you put a fixer in a role where there really aren't any problems, they will start breaking things just in order to have something to fix. <laughs> right. Um, if you put a uh, if you put a builder in a role where an, the organization's humming along, everything's good, mm. they're going to blow everything up so that they can build something completely completely new from scratch, right? And the same with an optimizer. If you put an optimizer in a role that that needs a builder, somebody to build something new, they're going to be paralyzed. They'll have no idea what to do because they're about squeezing out efficiency, but they, they really don't know where to start when it comes to building something new. Now, you know, none of us are perfectly a builder or a fixer or an optimizer, but we do kind of have those tendencies. I know that my tendency is toward building. I love building new things. And the thing for me, if I'm put in charge of something and, and now, okay, now we're responsible for scaling Mm. this thing, I'm going to get bored silly and I'm going to (laughs) create chaos around me because I'm going to be thinking, why are we doing this? Let's go start this other thing way over here, right? Mm. Let's build something brand new. I know that about myself and I've worked with optimizers who have no clue how to build something new, you know, Mm. where it's like they're really great at squeezing efficiency, but when it comes to like, we need this new initiative over here, this new project, they don't know what to do. And so we have to understand as leaders, we have to understand the, the motivational profiles of the people on our team. Now, nobody gets to do just the work they want to do, you know, only the, the kinds of work they want to do. We, we all have to do things we don't want to do. But if you have a, a builder who is primarily assigned to tasks that require optimization, you're probably going to lose them because they're going to get bored. They're going to be frustrated. They're going to create chaos for people around them. They're going to have, and you're going to have no clue why it's happening. Well, it's because you haven't aligned them with their core motivational archetypes. So can you give them 
a project on the side, something to work on? Can you bring them into a project early when you're really establishing the strategy and figuring out where you're going to go and then let them move on to the next project, right? Let them don't, don't require them to be around for those sort of optimization phases of a project. So these are just a couple of things I go into a lot more in the book, but you know, it's important that we understand what motivates our team so that we can align them with the kind of work that we're, where we're most likely to get the, the best effort out of them. Uh, talk a little bit about the importance of, of buy-in, Todd. I've I've worked in an organization where we struggled with that. There was a sort of a faction, a leadership faction that would make grandiose plans, and then we would roll out those plans to everybody else. And over time, we began getting feedback that was like, you know, rather than going about it that way, why don't you bring us in early in the process so that we as employees right. can feel like we have have some some skin in the game? Right. Absolutely. And this is so important. I mean, it's really difficult difficult to be handed something to execute when you really don't believe in the strategy to begin mm-hmm. with. And, and listen, there are decisions made for all different kinds of reasons. So there are always going to be reasons why, you know, the higher ups in the organization or the big wigs, as I affectionately like to call them, <laughs> will make a decision and impose it. Mm-hmm. You know, as a leader, you you sit in the middle. We think that leadership is about being on top. It's not. Leadership's about being in the middle. And being in the middle means that you have to manage the pressure down and you have to manage the pressure up, the pressure down from the big wigs, all of these initiatives being pushed down on you and also the pressure up from your team. When are you going to go with my idea? You know, when am I going to get the next promotion? All these kinds of things. And so part of your job as a leader is to manage that pressure coming down and to say, hold on, time out. Let's bring my team into this so that they can have some skin in the game, not just so that they, you know, oh, well, let's just make them feel special and important. No, because you're going to get better work if they're bought in, if they understand the why behind what we're doing and and they're really bought into the strategy, you're going to get better work from the entire organization. So they don't have to be involved in every decision that's made, but let's at least bring them in on the, on the strategy of the work they're going to be required to execute so that not not just so it's you know so that they feel better and more vested but because it's we're going to get better work out of them if they understand the through line if they understand what it is we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it so as a leader that's part of your job part of your job is to ensure that you're advocating for your team on behalf of you know on behalf of your team to the organization but also advocating for the organization on behalf of your team so there might be times when you have to say hey guys we have to execute this i know we're not bought into this i know we don't understand understand it, but we have to do this. And here's why it's important. And let me cast vision for you for why it's important, because it's part of my job to advocate for the organization as well, not just for my team, but also for the organization. It's funny when I think about my first experience as a new leader with this and having uh, those under me complain, my initial response back then was, well, when I was in your shoes, I just I just did it. I didn't complain. So it didn't work very well. (laughs) And you know what? Frankly, there is a certain there's a certain amount of that as a leader you have to do. Mm. Right. There's a certain amount of and this is, you know, a certain amount of, hey, listen, suck it up. Do do the work, (laughs) do the job. Right. There is a certain amount of that. Um, That is true. But but only once you feel like people are hitting a line where they're, you know, listen, you don't have to be privy to every single conversation that happens organizationally in order to do your job. You just don't. But there is a certain baseline amount of understanding you have to have in order to bring your best work. And that's, again, as a leader, that's kind of the line that you have to draw for your team. And and frankly, most organizations err on the side of too little information. You know, so so you have to as a leader, you have to make sure that you're advocating for your team and getting them the information they need to be able to connect the dots and to do brilliant creative work, because that's what they're they're tasked with. But if they don't have the information in the context, it's going to be really difficult to do do the work. Uh, I'm jumping around 
around here a little bit. Another favorite uh, quote of mine is from from chapter eight of the book. And I, I remember writing this down in my notebook. And, and it says this, because email is free to send, we forget how costly it can be, or we forget it can be <laughs> costly. And this lends itself to something I want you to share a bit about, and, and that is protecting your team's margin. What, what does that look like? Yeah, there are two, you, your team has two finite resources to spend on behalf of the work time and attention. Right. And, and also energy. But, you know, if you take care of time and attention, energy also tends to take care of itself. So we have to be very, very careful about how we set expectations around how our team spends its time and attention. And, and you mentioned the email thing that's under the can we please just stop copying <laughs> every single person in the organization on every single email? The reason we do this as a leader is because we want to cover our rear. Right. right, right. Uh, you know, two weeks later, somebody says, well, I don't understand what what is this thing we're working on? And you said, well, you were one of the 47 people I copied on that email three weeks ago. Why, why aren't you fully read in on this project? I don't understand. Well, it's because you're putting everything. So you're, you're, you're not helping your team allocate its finite attention. You know, instead, you're putting everything in front of them to cover your rear or the organization's rear. Um, and in so doing, you're not helping them be selective. So if you want your team to do its best work, you have to advocate for their attention. You have to protect their attention. And part of part of how you do that is by only putting necessary things in front of them. You should not put something in front of your team unless there's something that you want them to do with that information. And if you if you do, people are every time you put an email in front of someone, even if they're blind carbon copied, they're thinking, okay, what do I have to do with this? Is there something here that's required of me? And if enough times in a row, if the answer is no, this is irrelevant, they're gonna start start ignoring your emails. You know, just like you know, coaches that just uh, you're know, standing on this. We see this in you know, coaches that are just constantly yelling at their team. Well, over time, the team just starts ignoring them. Like it just becomes background noise, and you don't want that. You want to make sure that. That, you know, your team's attention is allocated in the right places. So that's attention. The second thing is time. You know, we have to be really careful about how we allocate time organizationally. You know, many creative people have important projects, deep thinking they need to do about the work that they're doing or deep, you know, deep creating, designing those kinds of things that they have to do, writing, um, even just, you know, solving problems on behalf of clients. And yet, you know, we, we come in, they come into work and we expect them to be at an 815 meeting and a 915 meeting and a 1030 meeting and a 115, you know, and basically they're, they're playing meeting pinball all day. It's just bing, 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 bouncing around. And they have maybe 15, 20 minutes in between to allocate to their important work. That's crazy. That is absolutely, cr it's criminal because you're robbing people's lives. That's what you're doing. When you use their time poorly, you are robbing them of their life. And so we have to protect their time. So one of the concepts in the book that I talk about is building buffers, the importance of building buffers in your team's day to allow them to spend time on their most important work, which means creating space between meetings, predictable space between meetings, mm -hmm. um, creating space at the beginning of the day, the end of the day. One team that I work with established what they called no fly zone time, which was a predictable two hours a day, Monday through Friday, between 11 and one every day where you were under organizational mandate not to interrupt someone. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine two that. hours of predictable time to do work every single day? How crazy is that? Um, but but what it did is it gave people. They, they said, "Well, yeah, I've got a full meeting, uh, full morning of meetings. You know, it's not going to be fun. But I got, but but I know I have two hours of predictable time today where I can do my most important work. It's huge. It's life. It's it's completely game changing, is what it is. So maybe it's not that, but how can you establish some buffers, some space, some margin in your team's day so that they can delve into their most important work. Well, Todd mentioned earlier that as leaders, we, we, we can't afford to avoid 
conflict. And in fact, he says in the book that the best leaders help their teams learn to fight well. I like that. Todd, what does that look like exactly? <laughs> there is a misunderstanding about conflict in mm. organizations. You know, I, I once had a leader say to me, uh, you know, our team is about the healthiest team you'll ever meet. We never fight. And I just wanted to, <laughs> to look at this leader and say, are you kidding? You're the most dysfunctional team I've ever seen in my life. And the reason is that all of that conflict is just pushed beneath the surface. Mm. You know, but those conflicts are happening in maybe invisible ways, passive aggressive behavior. I'm going to hold on to this email a little longer. I'm going to get in a little dig in a meeting. I mean, it's happening in in maybe more subtle ways, but the conflicts are happening nonetheless. So as a leader, you have to embrace the fact that conflict is a natural result of talented, creative people bumping into one another. If you've hired properly, if you've got great people on your team, there's going to be conflict. Of course there is, because you've got talented, creative people bumping into one another. They're going to have strong opinions, and those opinions are going to have to be reconciled somehow, and they're not always going to agree. So we have to learn not to not to uh, see conflict as the enemy, but we have to embrace conflict, and we have to learn to fight well. So that means we have to learn how to ensure that we are fighting over the same thing, which is really important. Sometimes we, we get into conflicts and we're, we're fighting over different things. So let's make sure we're agreeing on what we're actually fighting about. Number two, let's make sure that we reassure our common objectives from the start, meaning let's make sure that we're actually moving toward the same goal. So not only are we fighting about the right thing, but we're also moving toward the same goal. Let's agree that we're trying to get to the same place You know, at the end of this conflict. And number three, always fight about ideas, never fight about personality. The moment a fight gets personal, everybody loses. Mm. You know, uh, I disagree with your idea is very different from and that's a stupid tie, right? Like the moment <laughs> that it gets personal, it, everybody loses in the room. And so you have to be really, really careful not to let that happen. So as leaders, our job, our job is to navigate and manage that conflict well. And that's it's really difficult. That's why the book's called Herding Tigers, right? It's a, you have these powerful, majestic creatures who are capable of beauty and majesty and all of this. But they're also capable of ripping each other to shreds and ripping you to shreds if you don't lead them well. And so, you know, as a leader, it's our job to create an environment in which conflict can happen and is an expected and natural part of what we do. But at the same time, we all recognize that we're headed toward the same thing. We're all on the same page. We have the same objectives. We all actually don't have to like each other, <laughs> but we recognize that we're on the same page and we're trying to accomplish the same mission. And that's another thing is everybody wants to be liked and everybody wants everybody else to be liked. Well, it's okay if you don't like your coworker. That's okay. You don't have to like everybody you work with and you can still be really effective. You have to be civil. You know, you have to be professional. You have to regard them with respect, but you don't have to like them, you know? Yeah, right. And so you know, I think that's part of this conflict thing is we have to recognize we can be respectful and civil and regard one another professionally. And we we still cannot like them. And that's OK. That's perfectly OK. We can all still get along and get everything done. <laughs> A former leader of mine, Todd, was was excellent at fostering this kind of environment. I, I really thrived in it. And we're all in different places now. But not too long ago, I remember several of us on his former team getting a text from him. And the text was along the lines of, guys, I had this major breakthrough with my team today. We just had our first knockout drag out fight and it was awesome. <laughs> that's such a great perspective because that's a leader who recognizes that we're only going to get to the best idea if we're willing to fight it out. Yeah. Well, I have a couple of questions, Todd, I'd like to ask you that aren't directly related to the book as I often do. But first, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure that we walk away with? 
You know, here's the main thing. The, the main thing about uh, that, that I've discovered about leadership in not only my time leading teams, but also in talking to a lot of other brilliant leaders and frankly, just even creative people is that your legacy as a leader is not about the work. We become so obsessed with the work and getting the work done, making the work great. Mm-hmm. Your legacy is the people. And so the challenge that I want to issue to everyone listening right now is this. You get to be the leader that you wish you'd had. You get to be the leader that you always said, oh, I wish I'd had a leader like that. All right, well, you get to be that leader. So 10 years from now, when somebody asks another person, hey, who was the leader that you that impacted your life? Who was the person who most impacted your trajectory professionally? They're going to say you. It's going to be you. And I think that is really the ambition that every leader should have. I want to be a leader who makes echoes in the lives of the people I lead. That's very similar to something, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it here, that Seth Godin said to me once when I asked him what he wanted to be remembered for. It was something along the lines of, I want to be remembered for the impact the people I led had on on the world. Uh. I love that. Is it Seth, Seth just has a way of saying things that just get straight to the matter. You know, it's like that's just that's just so perfectly well said. That's mm-hmm. awesome. So yeah, I'll just say what Seth said. Great. <laughs> well, it's been a little over two years since we last talked, and 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 I say that because this next question is one I've asked you before, but I want you to answer it this time in terms of if you can the last couple of years. And that mm-hmm. question is. Uh, the books that you've read in that span of time, what are the one or two titles that, that maybe stick out to you as having had the biggest impact on you? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I would say the f- probably the first thing that immediately popped to mind when you asked that question is Principles by Ray Dalio. Mm. And I know that he just came out with the hardcover version of that uh, oh, okay. book, uh, you know, not too long ago. But um, I read it when it was a PDF, like mm. probably a year and a half, two years ago. He, he issued um, basically a, a document that showed the principles by which he and by which his company have operated over the course of its lifetime. And um, you, really the thing for me that most impacted my life was the idea of building a machine to accomplish what you want. Mm. So, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way before, but you have an outcome you want and you have obstacles standing in your way. You have to identify those pain points and then you build a machine to help you circumnavigate those pain points and get to the objective. And I had never thought about <laughs> life and business and all of that as basically a series of building sort of building these machines in your environment to help you get what you want. So that that book has has definitely had a tremendous impact on me and on how I'm approaching my life and my work over the last couple of years. So I would I would def, definitely recommend anybody check that out. And a book I continue going back to over and over and over again more on sort of the creativity front and the leadership front mm-hmm. is a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball by Gordon McKenzie. <laughs> yeah. Um and he was the uh, former creative director at Hallmark uh, mm-hmm. once upon a time, uh, the late Gordon McKenzie now. But this book is just it's phenomenal and it's it's irreverent. And it talks about how as creative people, we are orbiting the hairball of the bureaucracy. And we have to make sure that we're positioning ourselves to draw from the bureaucracy, draw from the resources without getting sucked into the hairball. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really, really good book. And, and some of the chapters are like one sentence, like one of the one of the oh, wow. chapters is uh Orville Wright did not have a pilot's license. <laughs> I love that's that. That's the entire chapter. It's like, oh, <laughs> great, you know. Um, but that's that's how the book is. It's just you know, it's it's really good. So if you haven't uh, read that, I would highly recommend. It. It's a quick read. It's illustrated. It's just really fun. So definitely recommend that book uh, as well. That's brilliant. I'm definitely going to check both of those out. And then the principles book fed into your research a bit for for your new book, right? It did. Correct. Yeah. And it's funny because again, I was writing about this PDF before <laughs> principles was published as an actual book book. Just 
released this last fall. So it's funny when it came out, I'm like, oh, I wrote, I hope that what I quoted in the book is accurate to what the book <laughs> is now because they may have changed it and edited it and all of that, you know, right. in between. <laughs> well, I've asked you before for tips on, on ratcheting up our uh, public speaking game. This time I, I want to get your thoughts on tips for increasing public speaking opportunities apart from writing a book, which I think probably opens a few doors. Uh, what, what advice would you give there? Yeah, I would say number one, uh, it's important to recognize people don't hire speakers. Mm. They they hire people to help them solve problems, right? Ah, so right. you have to be very clear about your value proposition. So if if I said, you know, hey, I'm going to help you be creative. Well, mm-hmm. that's not really a problem most people think they have. But mm. if I say, hey, I'm going to help you deliver ideas under pressure every day. I'm going to help you structure your life so that you deliver ideas under pressure every day. That's a little bit closer mm. to what people feel like they need, right? And so my encouragement it would be make sure that you're defining what you do very precisely and that it speaks to an actual problem that people and organizations have. Because um, again, no, I very rarely do companies just say, you know what we should do? We should bring in a speaker, right? <laughs> but, they, but, but they say, hey, what are we dealing with right now? What are some topics that are of interest to us? And you know, how, can we, you know, how can we bring in somebody who can help us solve a problem? So that's number one. Number two is you, know, you just need to get in front of people. You just need, you know, um, speaking engagements lead to speaking engagements. Mm. And so the more you're in front of the right kinds of groups and the right kinds of people, the more likely your name's going to get out there and the more likely uh, engagements are going to come your way. And there's going to be an ebb and a flow. There are going to be peaks and troughs. Um, Mm. But, you know, if you kind of work the process and you get in front of people and you help enough people, I can't tell you how many emails I get from people that say, hey, I saw you four years ago at this (laughs) conference out in, you know, Reno, Nevada. Uh, Can you come speak to my company in Boston in February, like like in three weeks, you know, or whatever. And, And you you, you, know, you never know when those things come up. So yeah, that would be my encouragement is number one, make sure you're very precise in the kinds of things you're helping people with. And number two, get in front of as many people as you can, especially if you're early in your career. Well, in that the book has just released, I can imagine your schedule is is pretty busy, sort of in promotion mode here for the next few weeks. What beyond that, if you look out over 2018, what do you see that you and your team are excited about that may be coming up that you are able to talk about even now? Yeah. So we have a whole series of workshops that we've designed around herding tigers. Um, We'll be talking more about that uh, over the next month or so. Um, We're going to be talking about these workshops, but they're going to be in-person workshops where you can come and we'll work with you and work with your team and help you you do that. And then also we're going to be making them available in other ways as well. So that's very exciting uh, because my my goal with herding tigers is to actually transform what leading creative people looks like. You know, that's my goal. If I can transform the way that leaders approach their teams and provide an environment which creatives can thrive uh, in organizations, it's going to create more value for clients, for customers, for the organization, and it's going to transform the landscape of creative leadership. I'm tired of, you know, hearing stories from creative people. I'm not getting, you know, why won't those people? Well, well, let's change that. Mm. You know, we can change that. And if you're a, if you're a creative person on the team listening to this and you're thinking, well, this isn't relevant to me because I'm not a leader. Well, first of all, you probably aspire to be a leader at some point. So it is relevant to you because you need to be equipped now for when that moment comes. Don't do a crash course when you're thrown into a leadership position. But number two, you need to understand how to communicate what you need to your leadership. And so, you know, if you understand what it means to have stability and challenge, what it means when trust is breached, how do you lead the idea process effectively so that you're incorporating everybody into the, all these kinds of things, then you can communicate those things to your leader and you can begin to shape your environment, even if you're not in a leadership position. So, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, this next year or two years of working with uh, leaders and helping them be the leader that creative people need. 
Well, we always include all the, the links and resources pertinent to this conversation on the show notes page, but I'll just go ahead and mention here ToddHenry.com for, for more on Todd. And I didn't mention this in the intro, but uh, Todd has his own podcast, The Accidental Creative, one of the first podcasts I can remember about 10, 11 years ago discovering in iTunes. 2005. Wow. It's been 12 years now. I know, which is crazy because at the time I thought I was, man, I'm so late to this podcast thing. <laughs> I, I'm, I like missed the curve, you know, which is so funny. <laughs> But yeah, 2005 now, uh, 2005 has been 12 years. And, uh, you know, we do two episodes a week. Sometimes we do an interview. Sometimes I just kind of spout off about whatever I'm seeing as I'm working out there with clients. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's a great way to, I mean, as you know, podcasting is a great way to connect with people on a very personal and visceral level. Well, thank you for coming back for a third time. I I look forward to, to future trips, Todd. It's always a pleasure. Hey, thank you so much, Jeff. And thanks for the great work that you do. Everything you need to dig more deeply into this episode can be found at our show notes page created just for this episode. That is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 198 for episode 198. Special thanks to MSGMD and Mergalt. Uh, I love these usernames in iTunes. Uh, both have recently left five-star ratings and reviews. And Mergalt, you may not have known this, but you left yours on my birthday. Thank you. If you'd like to leave a rating and review, you could go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes. Thanks very much. That helps the podcast get noticed. Thanks again to our sponsors making this episode possible. Fresh Books with a free 30-day trial available to you. No obligation and access to 100% of Fresh Books features free for 30 30 days. Go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Thanks also to Gusto, a refreshingly easy payroll benefits and HR solution for the modern small business where you no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits and great service to take care of your team. Sign up today and you get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash read to lead. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, and remember, leaders read and readers lead. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.